With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It was just before 7.30 p.m. on February 9th, 2004, when Maura Murray was last seen. Her car was found damaged, locked, and abandoned on Route 112 just outside of the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Her disappearance has haunted and frustrated family, friends, and a community of people searching for the truth. Since that night, there has never been a credible sighting. You're listening to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim Lance. How's it going? Doing pretty well. How are you, Tim? Doing pretty well today. For this episode today... We want to go over facts from the beginning, from before Mara went missing, from before she left Amherst, and up until after she went missing. We just want to deal with facts like we originally intended in this show, this podcast, but we had some trouble doing so for a variety of reasons. But for this one, we want to stick right to the facts, and this is sort of a for-beginners episode. Sure, it's it's a um, kind of a what we know content, um, and for the past few episodes, we have been saying that we wanted to stick to as close to the accident timeline as possible because anything that went on with Mora in Amherst before the accident may or may not have something to do with the disappearance. But the most important thing to focus on, I feel, is the the couple of days and the timeline of the accident. Uh, to uh, to to actually hone in on on anything that's inconsistent, um, I think it's important to stick to the time in order to determine those inconsistencies, which I feel are very important to uh, to to showcase. This is an episode where if you are just hearing about this, or if you have friends who might want to start with this podcast, this would be a good episode to start with. Uh, I feel, and like Tim said, for a number of different reasons, um, it's been a little bit challenging, and we welcome the challenge because that's what this case is all about. It's been a little bit challenging holding the line of what is important and what is irresponsible speculation and theorizing on 
facts that aren't actually facts, just narratives that people have put out there that have become facts. So this would be a good episode to start with. And everything that we discuss in the next hour or so, all of the details here, all of the uh, timelines, all of these things were taken from police statements, witness statements, all as close to the date of the accident as possible. Okay, but before we get into that, we just want to uh, do our little uh, housekeeping here. And we want to say that uh, the anniversary of Mora's disappearance is coming up. That would be the 12-year anniversary. We are going to be in Haverhill, New Hampshire, at the accident site with our cameras, our audio equipment, and we're also going to the lodge. The lodge that we're going to, this is the uh, location where they had their base of operations during the days and weeks after the disappearance. This is where the investigators would meet, where the searches would start and typically end. They would recap what they uh, what they found or didn't find during the, the course of the day. So uh, it's kind of like a uh, coming full circle for some people up there. In addition to being at the accident site, we are going to be about five minutes up the road at the Mountain Lakes Lodge, and uh, we are going to meet some people there, and uh, we're going to have a discussion. And John Smith really wants to keep this case in the light, obviously, so that's really what this day is for, and that's why we are gathering at the Mountain Lakes Lodge to have a discussion, a very mature, polite discussion, where everyone with opinions can bring them. And if they're different, that's fine. What this shouldn't be is a live version of a Reddit thread about Maura Murray. Good point. Yeah, if, if you have varying opinions, that is fine. Um, just please don't uh, don't be intense about it. Let's have a mature discussion. And uh, I'm very excited to be there. Yeah, so am I. Sometime probably around 1 o'clock, 12, 1 o'clock, we, we will be at the lodge. And uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, the way to do that is at Maura Murray Doc. We're also on Facebook at The Disappearance of Maura Murray. And we are on Instagram as well at Missing Maura Murray. So if you want to follow us on social media to follow this, that is the way to do it. Okay, so let's get into what we have for the timeline. Yeah, I'm really excited about doing this because it's uh, something that we keep promising and it's long overdue. Uh, for the listeners to hear this. So again, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat this. If you're listening to this and you know people who would be interested in following this case and helping out, this would be an episode to start with. We could almost call this 22.1, kind of like a new, a, new, a new chapter. So the last episode, we had our uh, informant, our investigator, uh, KF, on, and it was a really well-received episode and in the uh in the couple of weeks since that episode well since before that episode and leading up to pretty much today she's been working with us on coming up with this timeline so a lot of the information here has been uh neatly organized and detailed out bullet pointed out um to make our uh conversation our discussion about this uh flow in a in a way that makes sense for everybody so uh just wanted to thank kf for this and uh if there are anything that's uh, that's wrong in this, then it's her fault. Yes. <laughs> Big thanks to KF for the help on this one. Okay, so let's get right into it. Thursday, February 5th, 7.17 p.m., Mora talks to Billy on the phone. A 20-minute call. Now, this is her cell phone, right? This is based on uh, the cell phone records that we received through a, uh anonymous source. And according to Karen Mayotte, who was Mora's shift supervisor, Mora's shift would have started that night at 7 p.m. So Mora was using her cell phone 
during your shift if she had 20 minute call at 717 yeah okay and lance i know you talk to me at times during your working uh, hours and uh 20 minutes is kind of a long time though usually we, we make it uh, pretty quick um because you have to run back into work uh, no that doesn't happen <laughs> yeah that's uh, that's what we're getting at here um during her shift when she's not allowed to use the cell phone uh she has a 20 minute call uh Actually, she she talks to Billy multiple times on the night, and the first call begins at 7.17. So she's talking to him during her shift multiple times. So it would indicate that something important is going on. Also, I don't want to um, downplay the fact that we're looking uh, close to um, Valentine's Day. So they might have been making Valentine's Day plans or something. You know, we're just saying that whatever the conversation was, it was it was uh, there was enough content there to be multiple times in the first one, 20 minutes. Yeah, and and that's really just my opinion that it's probably on the important side, I think. Sure, sure. But uh, then there were two short calls um, before another six-minute call at 9.56 p.m. Two short calls to Billy. Yeah. Two short calls and then another six-minute call. So she spoke to him four times between 7 and 10 p.m. And the short calls could easily be uh, calls that go to voicemail and she leaves a message. Could be, yep. Or vice versa. And then at 10.10 p.m., Maura calls Kathleen, her sister, and speaks with her for 28 minutes. And according to Kathleen's statement from Seventeen Magazine, she was telling Maura about an ex-girlfriend of Tim's who he owed money to, Tim Carpenter. Tim is, the, at this time, um, the husband of Kathleen. Exactly. So this is interesting. I just want to look at the time frame again. Six-minute call at 9.56 would bring you to uh, 10, 10.02. Eight minutes after that, Maura calls Kathleen and talks to her for 28 minutes. I'm not saying that those two calls or the, the series of calls to Billy and the follow-up call to Kathleen are related, but that's just the timeline. Right. Okay. But that is a lot of uh, talking on the phone during your shift when, uh, you know, Karen Mayotte has said that you're not supposed to be on the phone at all, right? right? So Maura's call with Kathleen lasts for 28 minutes. The ex-girlfriend that Tim Carpenter owed money to was harassing Kathleen and Tim on the phone, and Kathleen was sick of it. From Kathleen, Maura consoled her and told her not to worry. Kathleen claims that Maura did not seem upset or sad. But Karen Mayotte's statements about this night have changed at times, um, but she has obviously, everyone knows that she said, uh, Mora was very upset and said, my sister, and uh, began to cry. We cannot corroborate that. Karen Mayotte has uh, this statement after the phone call that this was the phone call that uh, Mora said my sister. Um, and she was, you know, visibly uh, upset. And Karen claimed to have filed this statement with the police department. Now, I guess we are assuming that she filed the statement with the UMass PD. However, no such report exists. Going back to what you said about Karen Mayotte's statements about this night have changed. We have no way of knowing because no student or official statement has ever come forward other than the statement that Karen claimed to have filed with the, the police department. Now, the UMass police department says that no such report exists. And that's, that's where we're at right now with that piece of the investigation that's where uh, kf is at right now 
with this piece of the investigation. So all we have of Mora being upset and Karen walking Mora back to the dorm, things we've talked about multiple times on this podcast, is really only from Karen Mayotte. So it's really hard to call that fact. For the purpose of this episode, it's very hard to call that fact. Without any backing statements, without any other student or faculty member or a, uh, a report that Karen said she filed, unless we get Karen on the, on the phone and, and on the show, right now it only comes from what we've read that Karen has said as fact. We've never actually heard this from Karen. We've only heard it from people who say that they've talked to Karen and this is what she said. So later in the same night, after midnight, so it's technically Friday, February 6th, Mora makes a call to Billy's cell phone at 12.07 a.m. that lasts for seven minutes. And then she has no cell phone activity until 3.40 a.m. when she makes a two-minute call to Domino's Pizza. I mean, I don't know if we can read into that too much. And I know that people are talking about um, an individual that may have worked at Domino's Pizza that she may have had a connection with. But um, at this point, we have nothing more than she was hungry at 3.40 in the morning. I'm going to go back to uh, the Karen Mayotte statement. And for anybody who's listening to this for the first time, that should be probably your first yellow highlighter moment if you're taking notes. That's something that uh, is out there that has never been um, backed up with any other fact other than what we said before. At 12.20 a.m., Patrit Vassi is found after an apparent hit-and-run accident. A lot of people have speculated that Mora may have been the person to hit Patrit Vassi and not report it, and maybe that's why she was so upset that night. But no definitive evidence has ever linked Mora to this incident. And actually, uh, Lance and I, with uh, a friend, Courtney, actually, we visited Amherst a couple of months ago and looked at the exact spot where Patrit Vassi was hit, also the spot where Mora worked, and it seems to us that there is no link between Patrit Vassi's hit-and-run and Mora Murray. At least that's my opinion. Um, we can roll some of the audio from Amherst. I'm just trying to, like, figure out. Like... <clears throat> what are you trying to figure out? Like, um... And if he was coming from that bar, Charlie's, which is a popular bar, yeah, he'd be coming from that direction. Yeah. And then, so I don't know where, like, what direction the car that no one knows what direction the car would hit him, right? Right. And he would obviously be walking on this side of the street. Right. And you're saying there's a sidewalk. Right. Yeah. I'm always just wondering, like, how does how does that happen? Maybe right here. Maybe crossing the street. I mean, it, it might not literally be at the corner. You know. Yeah. Might have just been the closest intersection that. Well, I do. I do suppose if he was walking on the other side of the street, which yeah, I don't know why you would. Uh, but I guess if you're, you know, a little drink, drunk or whatever, unless he's, unless he's crossing the street here and someone comes in. Circling back to the 3:40 a.m. call to Domino's. Let's just say, hypothetically speaking, Mora calls Billy at 12:07, and the call lasts until 12:14. The hit-and-run accident was approximately 12.20. Well, he, he was found at 12.20. He was found at 12.20. Yep. So some people thought that maybe Mora called Billy right after she hit him or was potentially on the phone with him. But again, it doesn't seem like Mora would have left her station at that point. And actually, we spoke to someone who had the exact same job as Mora at UMass at that time. 
And that person also believes it's highly unlikely that Mora hit Petrit Vassi. It just doesn't really make much sense to me. It does seem like a um, conspiracy theorist connecting of the dots of incidents that happen at the same night. And I know people are going to listen and be very tempted to highlight this one and look into it. But if you can refrain from contacting Patrit Vassi, please, please do so. Please refrain from contacting him or his family. This is something that he doesn't want to be a part of. Um, until some definitive evidence comes forward, and I know there's talk about the the Saturn having damage on it that may or may not be consistent with the accident scene in Haverhill, and some people are trying to connect that to what the damage on the car would be if a body had hit it, but this really might be trying to find a conspiracy in something that's not there. And Patrick Vassi didn't see any car that hit him. He has no memory of the accident, from what I know. All the contacting that you'll be doing if you decide to contact him is just bringing up stuff that he has seriously no memory of, and it's it's not it's not healthy to bring it back up for this uh, this this poor guy. The guy probably wants to move on with his life. If some investigation is underway by professionals and they find a link, then then we'll talk about that. But right now, it's just it seems really it seems really out of place and kind of uh, grasping at straws to me. So on Friday during the day, classes were actually canceled because of snow. And we have no records or statements about what Mora did on this day. She has no cell phone activity until 6.01 p.m. when she calls her voicemail. At 6.13, she received an incoming call that lasted for 17 minutes. And we don't know who made that call. And at 10.02 p.m., Mora calls Fort Sill in Oklahoma where Billy was stationed and had a conversation that lasted 10 minutes. So do we see anything uh, as a red flag here in what happened on Friday, other than um, there's no cell phone activity until about 6 o'clock? It's really hard to say. I would say no. I would say she was probably sleeping a good amount of that day because we know she was up until 4 uh, 4 a.m. She was probably sleeping in late, and uh, it's really obviously hard to say what her and Billy spoke about on the phone. So I would say no, we can't really say anything about this. Yeah, I see. I really see no red flags here. I see someone who probably slept until about noon or one after being up, at, you know, we know at least until 340. It doesn't surprise me that she wouldn't talk to anybody until until six. Yeah. Okay. On Saturday, February 7th, according to Fred Murray, he arrived at UMass Amherst to pick Mora up between 12 and 1230 p.m. And Fred claims that he and Mora were shopping for a used car during the day. Also, the 12 and 1230 p.m., this has not been confirmed by any other accounts other than what Fred Murray has said. So just to be fair in the whole situation. Right, but you know this is the the dad of a missing girl. I I prefer to give him the benefit of the doubt until we can absolutely prove uh, that he's not being honest about it. Correct, absolutely, I agree. Um, just for anybody who's listening for the first time, this is kind of like a category moment where you know you kind of put Fred Murray in the category of if he says that he was there between twelve and twelve thirty, he's going to try to be as accurate as possible if he's genuinely looking for his daughter. And the only concrete evidence we have to corroborate that Mora and Fred were looking for a used car that day, or a car that day, is uh, a call to Reliance Auto at 4.13 p.m., which lasted for three minutes. So they call Reliance Auto at 4.13 on that Saturday, after the snowstorm. 
So later on that night, according to Fred, he states that they had dinner at the Amherst Brewing Company with Maura's friend Kate Markopoulos, and then they went to a liquor store. Although this has not been confirmed either, other than by the sources previously mentioned. Maura's last call for the day was to Kate's cell phone at just after 9, 9.01 p.m., and according to Fred, Maura dropped him off at his motel, which is a about a mile or so from UMass at 10 p.m. And according to Kate, she and Mora arrived at Sarah, another mutual friend, Alfieri's, dorm room at 11 p.m. Uh, no third-party accounts have confirmed this information, and now we're starting to talk about the infamous party at Sarah's dorm, which there's a school of thought that this was a party that was so memorable that everyone should have it in their memory bank, the people who attended, what Mora was doing every minute of that party. But um, we've spoken to individuals from UMass Amherst. And if you have gone to college and you've hung out in someone's dorm, that's pretty much what we've been getting is that it was just kind of a night where they got together at the in the dorm room and no one really logged anything in their memory because no one knew what was going to happen it didn't seem that eventful potentially why would it be that eventful if it's something that they do two or three times a week you know just i'm not speaking of them specifically but when you're in college and you just go to someone's dorm to hang out two days later one of the members of that gathering goes missing and then 10 years later someone asks you about it you might say yeah i don't remember anybody at that and I think the use of the word party in the dorm room is being way overused, that it's uh, there was some party that had been planned all night and everyone was, <laughs> was looking forward to this party. So why would you, you know, why would you uh, why would you forget, uh, you know, who attended this party? And but really, I don't remember what I did like three nights ago hanging out with somebody. And I suppose this dorm room could have been, you know, the people could have been packed in like sardines wall to wall. But really, if that was the case, maybe there's room for 20 people at most 25 people. It seems to me like it, it, it is as it seems. It was, it was a very, very small gathering of uh, Mora, Kate, and Sarah, maybe other people. Um, but we also heard from someone at UMass that um, that Kate may have not known any of these other people, if there were other people at the party. Which might not be that uncommon that someone would bring a couple friends that it wasn't, it wasn't even Kate's... Uh dorm so maybe sarah had a couple of friends in there that kate had never met or a friend and they brought a couple of friends um it's probably just not it's not something that uh that they cataloged in their brain as anything significant other than oh i just don't know that person um and it sounds really mysterious when you're talking about years later the girl from that party is missing so it sounds mysterious when you know when you look back at it like that but you can say you can say things that can be written down and interpreted different ways. If you read them on a blog where, you know, it says Sarah does not remember anybody who was in the, at the party or claims. If you use the word claims, that's what I'm going for. You use the word claims. Sarah claims she doesn't. Yeah. She claims she didn't know, but maybe, and I'm not saying, you know, for any of the armchair detectives out there who are actually good at what they do, you know, with the armchair sleuthing, you know, look into this, but don't, you know, it, maybe it is what it is. Maybe she claimed she didn't know who was at the party because she didn't know who was at the party. So leave her alone, you know? <laughs> yeah, sort of in the way that uh, that we spoke about Fred just a few minutes ago. I, I don't really think we have any reason to not believe that their accounts of this. I don't think we have any reason to. I've never spoken to her. I 
don't even know. You know, there's no reason to not believe that she doesn't know who was at a, what could be just a, a arbitrary gathering in a dorm room. Okay, and then we get into Sunday, February 8th, and we're still talking about really the night of Saturday. So it's past midnight, uh, early hours of Sunday morning. According to Kate, Kate and Mora left Sarah's dorm at 2.30 a.m. And police records show that the Hadley Police Department received a call from the UMass Police Department at 3.33 a.m. And this is something where I think I might have gotten wrong and corrected on previous... Uh... Might have been the episode with uh, with KF that I I I had gotten it wrong that they left at two thirty and the call came to the UMass Police Department at three thirty three, um, so there is a there is a gap there of uh, of an hour. Yeah, and and it certainly doesn't take an hour to get from one of the dorms to the T intersection where Mora actually crashed uh, Fred's car, but. We don't know. Maybe Mora hung out with Kate for 45 minutes uh, because Kate was with Mora when they left. So, What is curious about this is, according to Kate, she and Mora left Sarah's dorm at 2.30. There have been statements that Mora left with a, with a man. So according to Kate, again, we're going into, you know, this is information that is coming from something that um, can't be backed up by, by anything other than this witness's account. If you're drinking, or even if you're not, and it's you know the wee hours of the morning, uh, 2.30 might really be 2.50. Who the hell knows how accurate 2.30 is? But that's what she said. Yeah. Yep. And this is where we start getting into uh, into this, uh, you know, what's important and what's not important. But let's just continue uh, reading what happened that night. The accident was the area of the T after as you're leaving uh umass amherst so it comes to the comes to the end of the uh the main road there leading into umass amherst and um across the street is forest and it's a it's a t intersection um according to the uh, umass police department's statement a umass cadet was standing by at the time of the accident we've been unable to locate the cadet or hear their account of the incident uh the officer on the scene, Mark Ruddick arrived at 3.37, so that's a four-minute response time. And according to AAA records, so somebody called AAA, the tow truck left the scene with Mora at 4.29. So the tow truck that was contacted by way of AAA left the scene with Mora at 4.29 and dropped Mora off at the Quality Inn where her father was staying at 4.45. And at 5.38 a.m., an 11-minute call is placed to Billy from Fred's cell phone. And that's presumably from Mora because uh, we have heard that Mora left her phone with Sarah or in Sarah's dorm. Right. So one thing that I want to get, and this, this is just um, something that strikes me as a little bit odd, is the arrival time of Mark Ruddick at 3.37 so the call comes in at 3.33. The officer arrives four minutes later. The tow truck doesn't leave the scene until 4.29. So nearly an hour later. 40, yeah. So, yeah. I guess I guess the tow truck arrives. They talk about what happened. Um, they load the car up. I could, I could see yeah I could see that be being pretty uh pretty close to the to the time. And at that time of night, we don't know exactly, you know, how many 
calls the tow truck uh, company gets, maybe they're really not ready for much at that hour. Sure. Or maybe they're on another call. So it's really sure. hard to say. Yeah. Sure. And we're looking at this saying it left the scene at 429. It might not have even arrived there. So if AAA was called around the you know 330 mark to the 340 mark, yeah, it might have taken them a half hour to get there. Okay, so that makes sense. So we can cross that off the uh, the list of things that, that seems like it would be a gap in time that really, really probably isn't a gap in time. Yeah. So Morris dropped off at the Quality Inn at 445, and then at 538, she uses her dad's phone to call Billy, and that phone call lasts 11 minutes. We can safely assume that she's talking to Billy about the accident that she just got into with her dad's car. Right after that call... A call is placed to Fred's cell phone from Billy at 549 that last five minutes. Yeah, so maybe they dropped the call or maybe um, they just hung up or maybe maybe they were in some kind of argument and, and one of them hung up and, you know, then, then it got called back. Who the hell knows? But that's what happened. Yeah. And according to Fred, he dropped Mora off at Kennedy Hall between 1 and 1.30 p.m. and drove to Bridgeport, Connecticut. That's Sunday. And there were no calls on Moore's phone until 8.36 that night when she calls her voicemail. Her only other call is to Fred at 11.26 p.m. And that's the call, I believe, where, you know, during the, the course of um, the day after the accident, Fred and Mora had, according to Fred, worked out, you know, the arrangement with the insurance, how to deal with the accident, uh, his rental car. So the 11.26 call was, uh, we've mentioned before, uh, when when Fred has made the statement that you know he told her not to worry, we'll get this sorted out on Monday with the insurance company. Right, and so it was mostly that call. I think we can presume was mostly about the accident and and insurance and that kind of thing, because we know the next day she had paperwork in her car. Yeah. Do we see any like highlighter moments here? Um, I know there's been some talk about whether it was a single bed or a double bed or two beds at the Quality Inn and. There's been a lot of um, theorizing about whether or not, you know, Mora was sleeping in the bed as the same bed as Fred. But from what we have, uh, the information that we've gathered, this was a room that had two beds in it. It appears that the front desk was was uh, made Fred aware that Mora was at the motel and let her in. And they were definitely in different beds. You can listen to episode 21 for more detail uh, on that if you so choose. Okay, so on to Monday, February 9th. This is the day that Mora goes missing. Lieutenant John Scarinza stated that Mora Murray was using the internet until 4 a.m. early Monday. She has no activity on her cell phone until 12.55 p.m. when she calls Linda Salamone, the owner of a condo in North Conway, New Hampshire. Linda has no recollection of a conversation with Mora, but is confident that she did not rent her condo to Mora or anyone else on that date. Now, according to the people that we've been talking to, some pretty credible sources, we know that the police did not talk to Linda Salamone. So that raises the question as to where the police, with their investigation, where their collective heads were at. How do you not interview, and if I'm wrong... I need to see some sort of documentation that a conversation did happen. 
but we have a very credible source that said the police did not talk to Linda. How do you not talk to the person who was quite possibly one of the last people the person missing spoke to? It's a good question. Highlight that one. Mora then calls her UMass voicemail twice, followed by a call to 1-800-GO-STOW. And Stowe Mountain is a ski resort in New England. She then calls Billy's cell phone, which goes to voicemail. And at the exact time she calls Billy, he is calling Kate Markopoulos, Mora's friend's cell phone, which is why Mora's call was sent to voicemail. So after she checks her dorm voicemail, she calls Ghost Stowe and then calls Billy's cell phone, goes to voicemail because he is on the phone with Kate Markopoulos. And then Billy checks his voicemail and then makes three calls to Morris' cell phone, which go unanswered. His calls are three, four, and six minutes after her call to him, her original call to him, but she doesn't pick up at that point. So I think, I think you can highlight we, that area. <laughs> I think we, yeah, I think, I think we can highlight that area. Um, something, something's kind of, something's kind of going down and I'm not saying that in a way where, you know, a plan is being hatched, but more is more is calling places that would suggest that she's going to go uh, visit go stow uh, the condo in North Conway calls Billy checks her voicemail. You know, this is all stuff that like, it seems like the communication was all supposed to be happening. The plan or for whatever, you know, plan was happening was all happening in this, this time period. And Billy's calls to Mora are interesting in that there were three of them, you know, uh, in today's day and age, Lance, if I call you and you don't answer, maybe I leave a message and uh, and I don't call you again until I hear back from you. Um, obviously, we're not in any kind of romantic relationship and Billy and Mora were, which, you know, I've been that age and in volatile relationships, which we did make calls like that at times, one, two, three, back to back to back uh, calls to try to get someone to answer potentially. Yeah, I've also been in the situation where I uh, I call somebody's phone and it goes to voicemail and I leave a message and then I put my phone down and I go and jump in the shower. And that person calls back once, calls back immediately after because, oh, maybe they didn't you know hear this. And then he waits a minute and calls back again. Um, so, yeah, highlight this. Saying that she didn't pick up is not necessarily saying that they were in some sort of argument. Right. And according to media, but not confirmed by firsthand accounts, Mora leaves UMass at 3.30, or as late as 4.30 p.m., depending on the source. The police say approximately 4.30 in the afternoon is when she left. Police say that approximately 4.30 she left UMass, Mm -hmm. Amherst. The Boston Globe said she withdrew $280 from an ATM at 3.40. Okay. Multiple sources report that she was seen on a surveillance camera and she was alone. We've always thought that the surveillance camera was the one from the ATM. However, I don't want to point that uh, fact in any particular direction, whether it was the ATM camera or it could have been the building that the ATM was attached to or it could have been something across the street. Uh, some surveillance camera uh, shows that she was alone. Uh, this is from multiple sources. Police have never released this footage to the public which is extremely interesting. That is a, that is a, a, a big highlight moment there. Um, we've looked into other missing person cases, and I would say nearly 99% of the time 
I feel like they would uh, they release footage of anybody who is missing as soon as they could, because you never know if somebody sees something in the background that's that's relevant. There's no harm in releasing this footage. You would think, yeah. I mean, yeah, may- maybe there is, and, and we don't really know why there is. But yeah, it seems like you would you would presume that the footage of her, which is the last footage that we know of Mora would have been released because that would have been exactly uh, what she looked like at the time of her accident or about as close to it as we can get. Absolutely. And if this was footage that shows her alone, as the sources have stated, what is the harm 12 years later? Because it hasn't done any good not releasing it. What is the harm 12 years later? What's trying to be protected here? I'm not saying who. I'm just saying what information is... is, is uh, has an attempt been made to, to protect? I'm not sure. 12 years later, what do you have to lose? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mora withdraws most of her money from her personal bank account. She then sends emails to her supervisor at work, as well as a college professor saying she would be absent from work and school for a week due to a death in the family. Uh, now, I know there has been some debate on whether she actually said death in the family or a family emergency, and I'm reading this right now from a press conference between the uh, Vermont State Police and the New Hampshire State Police from June 8th, 2004. If she said family emergency, um, the police said death in the family, and so really that's where that went wrong, I guess. Is there a time on that email? No, it doesn't say. Just says that she sent it sometime that day. Yeah. What you're reading right there is uh, what the police press conference, uh, their statements at the uh, press conference. Yes. Which says that she left an email. She sent an email to her supervisor and to her professors. The 17 article reported that she left a note for her boss at the art gallery at 5 p.m. So maybe it's just selectively including and... and, um, and not including certain information at the press conference. Uh, but both of our pieces of information come very close to the actual date of the incident. So, Right. The 17 Magazine, actually, that, that information would be closer to the accident than the police press conference, which happened in June. Um, but not saying one is more correct than the other, just stating the timing of those. It could be that the police just felt that the semantics of differentiating between a note left and an email left. They didn't really have to get into that at the press conference. We do know that by five o'clock she had communicated in one form or another with supervisors and faculty that there had been a death in the family, a family emergency, and she was going to be gone specifically for a week. And at 4.37 p.m., Mora calls her own voicemail. And this is the last known call from Mora's cell phone in the records. Now this is, she's calling her dorm voicemail. I believe so. Okay. Now it is important to note that we are missing a page of her roaming calls. 
which is why no calls from New Hampshire are on her records. Um, this is just the last phone call that we have. Anything that she would have made, any call that she would have made from New Hampshire, we would not have. Right. Anything that's outside of the uh, service area, anything that would be considered roaming. Um, and this is something that KF pointed out to us that we uh, we didn't have and um, we didn't we didn't really notice. It, it just kind of looks like there were no calls made after a certain point. But when you look into it a little bit deeper, it just means that we did not receive the section of the phone records that included roaming calls. Right. And maybe she didn't make any other calls. We don't even know. There are reports of Mora stopping at a liquor store and spending about $40. These reports cite a receipt found in her car, though uh, we do not have official confirmation of such a receipt. So she supposedly was seen on the surveillance camera at the liquor store, though, again, this has not been confirmed by any official source that we could find. This could very well be, and this is another highlighter moment, this could very well be something that um, we can look into and find out if um, these are actual sightings, sources are legit, or if it was somebody writing something and it just became fact over the years. This is interesting, though. This is this is a, a definite um, highlighter moment as far as Moore's intentions. According to the photos of inside Moore's car, inside the Saturn, her gas tank was close to full. This would imply she stopped for gas somewhere in New Hampshire. I would say somewhere within a at least a 20-mile radius of the accident scene. Yeah. Uh, there's no official statements that she was seen at any gas station um, in the area or, or when she was seen or when she um, put gas in, in the tank, but it's something that we've brought up in the past. And again, if you're a first-time listener to this, uh, it's important to really think about the um, where your head's at when you're going somewhere. Um, this is something that we've used to dispute the suicide theory. Right. You're not going to fill up your gas tank. Right. And uh, and we will post this picture on our Twitter at Moramari Doc. So uh, you can take a close look at the gas gauge from the interior of Mora's car. I would say maybe closer to 40 miles within the crash site because sure. it's a little off the full marker. I know in uh, although this car probably has a very small gas tank, um, I would still say approximately 40 miles or less she would have put some gas in her car. Now, this is just my opinion. This this tells me that she did not intend to commit suicide when she went where she was going. Yeah, this would she she had a destination. It would it would appear so to me. I if you're planning to commit suicide, I don't think you're you're spending an extra twenty dollars. Or if you're planning to go missing and you have two hundred and forty dollars or whatever it was that she took out, you know you're gonna burn uh, ten or fifteen dollars of that on gas just to make it look like, you know, you weren't trying to go missing. Maybe you would. I I don't know. I've never tried to go missing. So I really have, I I really don't know. But from my point of view, that is my thinking that she was not trying to kill herself or go missing because of this, uh, this gas. And she certainly wasn't trying to stage an accident either. I don't know because I, I can't think of I can't think of where someone's head would be at if the plan was we'll stage an accident here I'll hop in your car and then we'll take off to you know sunny Canada and um and and live life you know up there for whatever reason I just feel like once she got to you know close to a location if she's if she's running low on gas it would be you know let's let's stage the accident here 
I just don't see if you're going to stage an accident, you're only going you're not going to take the limited amount of money that you have and and fill your gas tank. You're going to you might put 5 bucks in just to get to a location. Right. And I want to point out that Canada isn't that sunny. <laughs> I've always heard the opposite. This is important. This is important to note. It's important to think about if you're looking into this case for the first time. It doesn't make any sense. If you're planning on staging an accident and going, you know, taking off and never to be found again, you're only going to put five bucks in your in your gas tank if this is the particular location. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to say that this is an elimination of those other theories. For me, uh, and it sounds like for you as well, it, it is. But uh, I know for a lot of other people, they they disagree and they will continue to disagree with this point, and that's fine. Um, we respect your opinion. Just me personally, I, I don't believe uh, that, that she intended to kill herself. Maybe that is what happened still, but I don't think I, I don't think that um, that that evidence points to an intent to kill yourself. No, that evidence points to an intent to continue your journey to a location. Okay. Even if she was planning on staging the accident and this was done to make it look like she was going to location, which would be, you know, borderline like criminal brilliance. I think that fact that she had limited money, the four or the 280 that she took out from the ATM, having, having the, just keeping that money, you know, spending that only when needed would outweigh whether or not she wanted to fool people with the level of gas in her tank. That makes sense? Yeah. So that one fact right now in my head eliminates the suicide and the accident staging leaving with somebody else. Yeah. We're different people, Lance, you and I, but uh, so I, so I don't necessarily want to agree on everything, but I do agree with you on this. Also, I know that some people will uh, bring up the $4,000 that Fred took out of the bank account, and maybe she had that with her. But the information that we've received from credible sources told us that that money was put back into a bank account. And as far as anyone knows, no one's ever touched it. episodes ago, and you can go back and listen, I think it's episodes 19 and 20, John Smith talks about Witness A, who reportedly saw police SUV 001, Haverhill Police SUV 001, pass this person twice. And we described in the last episode how it could have been possible for this cruiser to pass Witness A twice because of a loop in the road. The police dispute this. We have spoken to Witness A a couple of times, and we believe this person is credible. It it is confusing to hear that this person was told that they did not see what they saw. So I don't really know where this fits in, if it fits in at all. Um, But it does conflict with a lot of the other reports that we're about to get into. Witness testimonies, perhaps. I feel like this is the most important time that we can uh, talk about within the timeline. Mm-hmm. 
because it, it seriously, we've said it before, it comes down to a, literally a matter of minutes. Timing had to have been perfect for anything that would have happened for Mora to disappear. It was already confusing enough without Witness A. And Witness A's statement added another layer on, which is almost laughably confusing. What she says contradicts what someone would say on the phone when they call police because of an accident. When we spoke to Witness A, and we've spoken to a lot of people, and, and Tim and I will talk about it after, and we, and we, you know when someone wants to say something but doesn't feel safe or doesn't feel like they, um, they're humble about it. They don't want their their name out there. They they don't want their uh, they don't want the attention. Some people will will start talking about details and facts because they want the attention. When we spoke to Witness A, I had no indication that she was doing this for any other reason. That she was really pissed off that she was being told that she didn't see or saw something that didn't happen or did happen. She repeatedly said to us, I know what an SUV looks like. I know what that, I, I know what, 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 you know, the, the general time frame because of a situation that happened at work and when she made a phone call to her father when she was in cell phone reception. These details were, are in her head and she's being told otherwise. Um, she's also not anybody who's in a position in her life where she would need any recognition. She doesn't desire any notoriety from this. She doesn't desire any uh, compensation. She just honestly wants her statement to be taken seriously. And, uh, and she was really surprised to find out, um, or she was really surprised when we, when we uh, contacted her and this was, this this was a, a topic of conversation. Yeah, or online, something that had been debated whether or not she uh, really witnessed this or not. And this is something that she told the New Hampshire State Police and investigator John Healy. Now, if you want to take a look a little closer at this, check out John Smith's blog, Truth Seeker Investigations. Search for moramurray.wordpress.com. We will link to it in the show notes. He goes into greater detail about Witness A and uh, the timeline around this moment. And so at 7.27 p.m., Faith Westman and the Westmans, uh, Faith and Tim Westman, they live right across the street from where Mora's car was found. Faith calls 911 to report a vehicle in the ditch on the sharp turn after the weathered barn. So it's really a hairpin turn. An easy turn to, to crash at or spin at, actually. Spin out at, actually. Now, the, the interesting thing that we talk about a lot is uh, the statement that Faith makes about uh, seeing a man in the car smoking a cigarette. We've talked about that ad nauseum. This was the moment where she uh, is looking out the window, she's on the phone with dispatch, and, and says that's what she sees. There's also been some debate whether she said a man smoking a cigarette or whether she just said there's a glow, because Tim Westman, from our audio that we captured ourselves, said that she never said she was smoking a cigarette or there was a man smoking a cigarette, just said that there was a red glow. Yeah, Tim Westman said that she said that. However, in the police report, it, it does specify sees a man smoking a cigarette right but let's roll tim tim westman's audio um right now we apologize for the wind this is an unprepared interview with mr tim westman uh from back in october was there i know that her first report was that there was a person smoking a, a, in the passenger seat a man Do you remember that? Uh, we saw a glow in the passenger seat it was only ever one person oh really okay Two 
two minutes later, at 7.29 p.m., Officer Cecil Smith is dispatched to the scene. So according to Butch Atwood's statement, he arrived, he being Butch Atwood, he arrived at the scene at 7.30. So it was right around the same time that Cecil Smith was called. And according to Clint Harding, who is a investigator, um, uh, a gentleman that we've had on the show in the past and we will have on again in the future, uh, the first 911 attempt from the Atwood residence occurred at approximately 7.40. So about 10 minutes after Butch Atwood arrived at the accident scene, the first 911 call was made from the Atwood residence by Butch's common-law wife about 10 minutes later at 7.40. Now, we sort of did gloss over Butch Atwood's account of what he said happened when he pulled up to Morris' car because, really, he's the only one who's ever said what he said. Um, And that Mora looked somewhat frightened and asked him not to call the police. And she said she already called AAA, which he knew was a lie because there's no cell phone service there today, let alone back in 2004. And then he took off back to his house, which is maybe a couple hundred yards from the accident site. And then his common-law wife uh, called the police. But again, we can't really corroborate that because... It is only Butch Atwood's account. He would have been the only person there, most likely, and he is now deceased. And here's a couple of things that I would like to see happen or to find out if they actually happened. Everyone says that when Butch came back after working, uh, driving his bus, he would back his bus in. So he's backed his bus in. We saw the, the, the site, and that's a pretty direct, you know, on an angle. It's a pretty direct sight line to the accident scene. Um even if he had to position his bus a little differently so he could keep an eye on the accident scene, he could see the accident scene. Um, something I would like to find out if it happened or not is uh, if there was any damage to... It was Butch Atwood's bus um, searched. Was it Was it examined? Was there any damage on the back or the front of his truck that might be consistent with um, the damage that was on the Saturn? Uh, I would like to know that. I'm not saying that I think Butch Atwood, you know, whatever my theories are, I'm not trying to promote them but i would like to know if the police procedure and the investigation led them to look at that because i would think that uh, a police officer the investigation you're seeing damage on a car you're seeing the last guy who spoke to this girl who's missing did you search his bus and did you search the exterior uh did you did you look at the um the the condition of the bus and see if anything might have been consistent with him possibly hitting that car or anything that might be consistent i'm not trying again to highlight any theory that i have i'm just wondering if the police did that now this is getting a little bit ahead of this night lance but uh butch atwood was given two polygraph tests so we do have an inkling that the police treated him as a suspect at least a little bit or maybe they might not have treated him as a suspect, and I was, I'm was i glad you brought that up. They might have, you know, he is the last person to have claimed to have seen her. So so they admit or, ad, administer one polygraph test, which was inconclusive or failed, uh, depending on what source you look into, and the next one he passed. So I would hope that because they administered that polygraph test that they actually searched the condition 
uh, of the bus or search the interior of the bus. We know they searched around his property. This could simply be just an elimination process. Right. And, and I would presume that that is the case, that they did search uh, the bus and the property. I would just love to know if they did. Yeah, I would love to know if there were pictures taken of the bus after, after the accident. Just on the tail end of that, the woman who is calling 911, who is Butch Atwood's common-law wife, said that her husband saw the crash and came home to call, but no idea where the female is. So that's actually taken from the, the, the dispatch log, from the call log. Well, it's interesting that, that she said uh, saw the crash because every other report we've heard is, is not that, that he pulled up um, while she was sitting in the car. Right. And it could just be, um, you know, a uh, innocent omission of details where we don't know. I mean, we've been up there. You see you see someone might crash. And just because of that type of corner, you can come up and just miss it. You know, they could crash. And then four seconds later, you come around the corner and you miss the crash. And you can just, you know, say, I saw the crash or I saw the results of the crash. No one really talks in such detail. One piece of this that I don't want to, that I want to clear up before there is any confusion. The woman calling said her husband saw the crash and came home to call, but no idea where the female is. When you first read that, you think that it's Butch relaying that information to his common law wife. I don't know where she is. When in fact, it's probably the common law wife on the phone with 911 and 911 says, where's the female now? What's the condition of the female? And she says, my husband said she's uh, she didn't seem injured, but shook up. Where is she? And his wife says, I have no idea where she is. Because she doesn't. She's on the phone. So she's assuming she's still by the car. That detail I wasted a lot of time on looking into before realizing, oh, it's just the way people talk. It's not that she's saying she's gone. We don't know where the female is. She's just literally not looking at her. 17 minutes after being dispatched, Cecil Smith arrives at the accident scene. At 7.54, he puts out a be on the lookout for a female about 5'7 on foot, who is the victim of a crash. Two minutes later, at 7.56, EMS arrives, followed one minute later by the fire department at 7.57. So at some point from when Butch Atwood drove to his house a couple hundred yards from the car and from when Cecil Smith arrived on the scene at 746 that Mora vanished. Yeah, 742, fire and EMS are dispatched after the 740 phone call from the Atwood residence. So fire and EMS are dispatched at 742. The first call is at 727. So nothing's been dispatched at 727. Officer Smith is dispatched at 729. He arrives at 746, which is 17 minutes, which I guess is good time to, to make it there. I don't know where he was when he was dispatched. Yeah, and I don't really know the location, but by the, the times that the fire and EMS were dispatched, they arrived 15, 16 minutes after they were dispatched. So you would presume that it took about that long to get from wherever they were stationed to the accident site. Yep. Give or take a few minutes. Once we get through this, anyone again who is just uh, using this as their their uh, initiation into the the day of the accident, into this case, 
pretty much is going to get a lot more confusing once we have Witness A on. We're going to reference this episode based on what she's saying her time frame is. But this is a really good place to start because this is documents that, as far as I know, are legit and legal. So according to our anonymous source with the phone records, at 8 p.m., a call is made to a Mr. Bob McDonald from Billy's cell phone, which lasts 34 minutes. Bob McDonald's has stated that their conversation was nothing unusual and that Mora was not mentioned. Take this for what it is. Based on the cell phone records, Billy called, or Billy's cell phone, called a Mr. Bob McDonald. Which is his very good friend. Exactly. We know that they know each other. From West Point. At 8 p.m. and it lasts 34 minutes. The 8 p.m. is Eastern time that we have on here. In the record, it shows that the call was made at 7 p.m. for 34 minutes. Great. Okay. So this is at 8 p.m. for 34 minutes. So this essentially would be Billy Roush's, Mora's boyfriend's alibi, is that he was on the phone with his good friend Bob for 34 minutes starting at 8 p.m. Now, of course, that's not the accident time, but if he was somehow involved at this moment, you know, you, you wouldn't think he'd be talking to his good buddy for 34 minutes. So really, this, to me, sort of clears Billy Roush from any wrongdoing. The other school of thought is that he was calling, if you want to get into like a grander conspiracy, he was calling Bob to find out how it went. That's a little much for me to take in. I, I understand why you said it, but I don't think we have any reason to believe that uh, that Billy and Bob planned to uh, make Mora go uh, go missing. Everyone's looking at this as a... Um... Like something, you know, they're, they, they're covering up or they're creating an alibi for themselves because we're coming at it with the mindset that something bad happened. It could be that 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 Bob had property that Billy and Mora were going to stay at to, you know, for Valentine's Day. And he called Bob to find out if Mora had arrived or told him that 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 she arrived at this this property. Yeah, I mean, it could be that or it could be just a random call from one good friend to another that lasted 34 minutes. I know that I've uh, talked to a lot of my good friends for that long or, or longer at times. And uh, really, I, I wouldn't remember what we were talking about, you know, years later or, or probably months later. We'd love to get Bob McDonald on the phone so we can talk to him about this phone call, uh, get him on the show maybe if he wants. But um, at least uh, just hearing what his uh, account is of the phone call, if he remembers it, that would do uh, a, a great service to um, what we're trying to get at right now, which is to clear up any inconsistencies or any uh, suspicions that would uh, lead us to focus on something more important. At 8.02 p.m., Cecil Smith tells the EMS to take off, that, that you're you're not needed here any longer, which is probably a highlighter moment as we pointed out on other episodes because they don't know where Mora is and they don't know if she was injured. The The fact is the police report states that Mora hit a tree and the windshield is cracked. So you would tend to believe that if that damage happened during the accident, including the windshield, that Mora hit her head and so that would tell you that there is some personal injury here on a woman that is not at the scene. Maybe she's concussed. 
maybe she's wandering around. We know for a fact she wasn't wandering the woods because of the snow and the searches that took place just after and days after. So Maura Murray did not go off into the woods after the accident. We know that for a fact. She did not go into the woods. She might have gone down a road. Absolutely. That's a possibility. She did not go somewhere that could um, be easily tracked based on footprints or uh, maybe blood splatter because there is a cracked windshield. We, we don't know how the windshield was cracked. Uh, and they knew that there was alcohol in the car and they knew that she was possibly intoxicated, possibly intoxicated. At what point do they make a decision that this is not a priority and Officer Smith leaves the scene at 926 to go to another 911 call. So he leaves the scene at 926 because the other 911 call has become a priority. So at what point is this person who's not at the car, at the accident scene, possibly injured, possibly concussed, possibly intoxicated, where in your head do you say, I'm not leaving anybody here to look or in case she comes back? Based on the police dispatch logs, they were wondering if she was going to arrive at the cottage, which is the cottage hospital. I guess they were operating under the assumption that she was going to make her way there, whether it was hitchhiking or <laughs> walking or a police, you know, someone in the search party found her. Like they, they, were, they followed up by saying, has she shown up at the uh, cottage hospital? And uh, just a side note throughout the evening. Numerous calls are made from Billy's cell phone to his father and a variety of other numbers, including his own voicemail, multiple friends, and more cell. Billy makes 26 phone calls before the time of the accident and another 26 calls after. Which is uh, a lot, as we um, talked about on a previous episode with John Smith. It is a lot for him. Uh, a lot of calls in a day. Yes. Whatever that means, we have no idea. But that's the fact. If we could clear up these inconsistencies and these things that seem mysterious on its face and uh, and prove that it's nothing more than just normal human behavior, then at least we can focus on something else. The two calls that Cecil Smith, that, that sort of bookended this accident, if you want to call it, which uh, it doesn't look like actually Mora hit the tree, which is another Huge topic of discussion. Uh, police report says it does. Doesn't seem like she actually hit any tree at all. But the calls that Cecil Smith had that bookend this were also both suicide attempts. So I, I don't know really what that says. But if you look at the at the police um, police records, that's really that's what he was coming from, and that's what he was going to. So I don't know what that says about that area. Whether it's seasonal depression in an early February or or just um you know something in the air that night I really don't know but uh but that is also a fact yeah like how many um is that common I don't know I mean maybe that's what led what leads some people to believe that Mora committed suicide or you know attempted suicide I mean three straight calls in a row being suicided I mean how unlikely would that be I mean please email us if if you're law enforcement and and that's somewhat common um, in, in snowy areas, uh, you know, that time of year, maybe, I don't, I don't really know. I just wanted to mention, and I think it's, um, kind of bizarre, the amount of suicide calls that there were in that area at that, on that particular night. Yeah. It's a point to note. It, it could really speak volumes for, uh, you know, the state of that area. Also, um, 
a man named Rick Forcier, who lives about really across the street from Butch Atwood and a little bit down the road from the Westmans, says that he spotted Maura Murray about five miles from her car that same night. And what we know of Maura Murray is that she was a runner. She was a track star in high school, and she ran a bit in college. And she could have made it to the point that Rick Forcier says she did. She would have been running on the road, which would be consistent with not seeing any footprints, um, would be consistent with her obviously not being in the car. And we do happen to know that the police took Forcier's account seriously at some point. Don't know if they still believe that it's an actual factual account of seeing Maura Murray, but we do know that the Murray family and the police, as well as independent investigators, took Forcier's account seriously for a, a number of years. Okay. And they also uh, searched Rick Forcier's property. They searched uh, the uh, the trailer that he was... Well, I believe they attempted to, and Forcier would not let them on the property. And not until he moved did the police search his actual property. Pretty immediately after he moved. They saw the opportunity to get in there before, as soon as they could. Right, because there have been rumors abound, things that we've heard from locals, from uh, informants, I guess is maybe the word you want to you wanna use, uh, that Forcier was on their person of interest list. I believe and still is. As well as a number of other people that we've heard of recently from uh, anonymous sources. Um, but yeah, it, it is factual that the police were, re- were really investigating the thought of foul play in this. So much that Jeffrey Streslin from the Attorney General's office in New Hampshire has been involved in the Maura Murray case since February 19th, 10 days after she went missing. And he said that he believed there was a 75% chance that it would result in a criminal case. Again, that was about 12 years ago. And no arrests have been made to this point. So I wonder what it is that he saw any evidence that he had compiled on his own to to lead him to the conclusion 75% a criminal case not a runaway not a suicide 75% a criminal case that it would result in a criminal case in his mind it might have been 100% sure and currently Streslin works for the New Hampshire Attorney General's office that is correct he works for the Attorney General's office Moving on to Tuesday, February 10th, 12.04 p.m., the now chief of the Haverhill Police Department, Byron Charles, advises that he needs a be on the lookout on Maura Murray, date of birth, 1982, May 4th. Apparently, this individual was involved in a motor vehicle crash yesterday in Haverhill. Upon officer's arrival, found the car, no driver with a rag stuffed in the tailpipe waiting on descriptors of individual. That was at 12.04 the day after. Waiting on descriptors of individual. Specifically cited Maura Murray. Leads some to question how they knew Maura was the driver. 
as we've been investigating this and as KF has been investigating this, it's worth noting that the Saturn was registered to Fred. And at this point, they had not made contact with any of Moore's friends or family. So how did they know she was the driver? They were operating on the assumption that she was the driver. A description was released. Martin Cashman provides the following description. Black hair, past shoulder length, wearing a dark coat, 5'5", 120 pounds, last seen in the wild Amanusik area. As far as we know, this description comes in before they put out the Be On The Lookout, long before they made contact with the Murray family or had received a photo of Mora. Unless we're mistaken here somewhere in our timeline, this is a big highlighted area. And at some point on the 10th, Kathleen Murray, uh, Mora's older sister, was notified that Mora was missing and that that Mora's car was found after a potential motor vehicle accident. Only then did Kathleen talk to Fred, Mora's dad, about this. And as far as we know, Fred hadn't received a call that Kathleen was the first person that that was notified about this. Right. Even though the Saturn was registered to Fred, Kathleen was the first person who was notified. As far as we know, unless they tried to notify Fred and they couldn't get through with him for, to, 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 for some reason, mm-hmm. which is very possible. Where did they get Kathleen's information at that point? As far as we know, Kathleen was the first person to be notified and she was the one that told Fred. Okay. So we want to, basically end the episode here and i think at some point in the future we'll pick up at this point um based on information that comes in hopefully we didn't make any errors um but we will correct them if we did and then we can go a little further past the ninth um with searches and police statements and things like that because we do have you know a press conference and uh, and other things from the police about their investigation. Again, we're just really digging into these these few hours right around the accident and try to make sense of them. Because this is the most important part. The why and everything will come, will come later, but this is where the answers are going to come from. Yeah, and at this point, for me personally, I want to say that after looking into this for the six months that we have, Lance, that I do believe Mora was met with foul play. I don't know if... It was from a person she knows or from a random local dirtbag. I think each of those is probably as likely. And for those people who say, well, use Occam's razor, no such thing as an opportunistic killer. We do know that there are such things as opportunistic killers in that area as well. Maybe we'll get into that in a future episode, but we do have to be careful about some of the names that we mention as persons of interest or potential persons of interest. Yeah, and just know that behind the scenes, a lot of investigation is, is going on, and a lot of communication is actually starting to to, uh, to happen with law enforcement and with, um, with certain divisions of, uh, of law enforcement. Um, I remember when we first started this, I was absolutely not in the mindset to say that, you know, listen, the... the the, the odds of her getting abducted by an opportunistic killer far, far outweigh the odds of, of her running away. 
in 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 uh in a sense where she probably ran away but the more we've looked into this in the investigation that we've kind of conducted on an amateur level leading into a more professional level with some of the connections we made um you know people say it's a one in a million one in 50,000 one in a hundred chance she could be the one in the fill in the blank it's it's when you start to uh, instead of piecing things together based on what you want your theory to be when you start to eliminate things as opposed to looking for things you 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 start to see that this is probably a case where somebody saw the opportunity yeah and again whether that be someone that Mora had planned to meet or whether that be just someone driving by who knows right. um, but as far as I I'm concerned I'm not going to stop considering any other options because I don't believe the Mora Murray uh, the Murray family stops considering the thought that she maybe ran away in fact we know for a fact they haven't stopped considering that or listening to theories about that but we do also know that the Murray family is about 99.9% sure that Maura Murray met with foul play. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.